Joe Lonsdale. Welcome to the American Optimist. We're lucky to have my friend Palmer Lucky with us today. Palmer was the founder of Oculus Rift, which created modern virtual reality and was sold to Facebook. He also now runs one of the most important defense companies in the world, Anduril. Palmer, I want to talk a little bit about your your background as an entrepreneur and, and, and would love to hear more about stuff you're building today. But when you when you originally built the Oculus Rift, you basically single-handedly reshaped how people thought about virtual reality. Like where did that where did that come from? Where'd your passion for that come from? Why, why why'd you do that? I was a PC gamer and I had about the best PC gaming setup that you could get. Um, I had an AMD iInfinity rig with six monitors and I was looking at it and thinking, what's the real future of this? Where is this all going? Uh, and it was very clear that the answer was not eight monitors or 12 monitors. It was going to be something radically different. And uh, I became very convinced that the final media platform, not just the next one, but the final one, I wasn't sure if it'd be the next one or if it was ready, but I knew that in the end, virtual reality was going to be the dominant media platform. That- how, how old were you when you were having this thought? Like 14 or 15. Uh, so I built my first head-mounted display when I was when I was 16. So I kind of got right onto it. Uh, my first stuff was really terrible. Like I, I can't act like I like I like I had immediate success. It took years and years of building things, uh, taking apart older headsets from the 80s and 90s to learn what the engineers had been doing in those cases, and then applying a lot of modern technology to the way that things were being done. And what, what's re- weird about the Rift is uh, it could have been built about three years. Like literally every component that I used in the original Oculus Rift prototype. Um, which I called PR6. It was the sixth major revision of my designs. Uh, every single part in it existed three years prior, and most of them existed four years prior. So that that's very that's very unusual. Because I was going to say, are you lucky you started just at the right time? But it sounds like just not enough people were actually working on this. For well, VR was a dead technology. It was this ghost town technology. It wasn't just like not cool. It was anti cool. Every VR company in history had failed spectacularly. And so it, it wasn't getting attention. There wasn't anyone at the big tech corps that were looking at it. And I think that startups were not paying it enough attention as well. So the thing that was really interesting about Oculus is that when I started the company, it wasn't because I thought it was going to be a really great business. It was because I thought that it would be something that would be really important in the long run and a lot of fun to work on. Um, and, and it ended up working out, which was really spectacular. That's awesome. So do you, do you think if there'd been more optimism and people were still trying things, someone else might have done this two years ahead of time, basically. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the really big innovation of the Rift was a pretty simple concept. Most head-mounted displays in the past had used complex, heavy, uh, expensive optical stacks so that you had a micro display of some kind, a heavy stack of glass, and then you have, you have an undistorted image on one side and out comes a beautiful image on the other end. But again, it weighs a lot. And think like six or seven pounds for these mm-hmm. big, giant helmets. Uh, to have any decent image quality or field of view. And what the Rift did was say, wait a sec, we can correct for lots of lens aberrations in software in real time. Geometric distortion, we can do that in a shader on a graphics card. Chromatic aberration, we can correct for that in a shader on a graphics card. And so I was able to make a headset that only optimized around the things that could not be corrected in software. Things like the cost of the unit, the weight of the unit, and the field of view of, of the image. And so if the, the Rift was designed as a very poor quality image, but you could use pre-distortion on the graphics card to basically generate an inversion of the distortion it created so that even though it was optically a terrible system, it comes to your eye looking really nice. And this was not a new idea. People had come up with this at NASA literally in the 60s and 70s. 
Uh, but the computational power hadn't existed. And the idea was just forgotten. If people had said, I am going to build the best VR headset in the world, they would have probably done it exactly the same way I did. I don't think there was another path. And the fact that I, as a single you know, teenager working in a 19-foot camper trailer, was able to come to this conclusion that now almost all the major VR companies have been you know, uh, ripping yep. off, uh, it shows that anyone could have done it if they had been more committed to the idea of making VR take off. Are there, are there a lot of things like that where we've we figured something out 40, 50, 60 years ago, but it wasn't possible then and maybe we forgot to come back to it? Is, do you think that's a theme that, that we should be looking at more often? I, I, have, I mean, I have a whole list on my computer of things that are this, basically forgotten technology, things that didn't work in the past and that are ripe for, for a comeback. And there's a lot of things like that. Like another example of this is ramjet engines. Uh, we don't have to get way deep into it, but Ram jet engines are a type of jet engine that has no moving parts. They can be made incredibly cheaply out of basically stamped or spun steel. And they go like Mach 5, right? Is that is that is this what I'm thinking of? Is a Mach 5 engine or how, how fast are they? Oh, that's the best part. The faster you go, the better they are, unlike most types of jet engines, because the faster you go, the more pressure they can develop and the higher your compression ratio of the engine is. So they actually start working. There are subsonic ramjets going back to World War II, but you really want to be going Mach 3, 4, 5, 6 for them to really come into their own and beat other engines. And until now, there's never been really aircraft that could survive that regime of flight. And so ramjets were just inefficient, impossible to start. The support equipment required to get them into the air and going fast enough was too heavy. But very recently, I think ramjets have come back into this world where we do have composites that can handle vehicles going that fast. We have secondary propulsion systems, uh, like basically electric propulsion that allow you to do things like, uh, you know, uh, I guess, a, a variable compressors that would allow you to use them from zero speed and then switch over to full RAM at high speed. This was actually what I was working on when I, when I was at Facebook. I had a side project. Me and a few guys were in Atherton, and we got kicked out of Atherton because we were making so much noise. Uh, but we were building a project called ASRAM, the assisted ramjet. And uh, it was a ramjet that could take off from zero and then transition to full RAM effect at supersonic speed. And our goal was to build a supersonic quadcopter. Uh, I ended up starting Anderil before we finished, but uh, that, 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 that's still... That's you think still Anderil on. might come back to Project Asram at some point? Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's definitely ongoing. And but like that's another good example, I think, of a technology where it was kind of a curiosity in the past. It only made sense for very specific niche applications. I think in the future, ramjets are going to come back and they're making a huge difference. I mean, they're really powerful power-dense jet engines with no moving parts. Imagine what the maintenance is like on a thing with no moving parts. That's gonna it's gonna be a lot better way to to, to, to build jets. What what you know just to step back one more time to Oculus. Do you have any favorite war stories from that time? Like any, anything that surprised you or that was particularly difficult after you got going? Oh man, there were so many things. I mean, I guess a negative a negative one and a positive one. Uh, like one 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 thing that happened, and it, I I like this war story because it flipped around in our favor right at the end. We were working with a game studio on an Oculus exclusive title. We were funding the development. We were putting tons of engineering resources into it. And then uh, after we put millions of dollars, which was, remember, a you know, big deal. You were an investor at the time. Yes, that's a, that's a lot of money to spend on this sort it, of thing. It was a lot of money. I mean, we were a 40-person company. We were like 45 people when the Facebook acquisition was announced. So like, we, we were a pretty small company. This was a big bet for us. And uh, we went to GDC in 2014. And on the first day of GDC, 
that same game developer that we had funded this whole title and done tons of work with them, they unexpectedly, literally like we had no warning at all. They show up on Sony's stage during the Sony keynote and announce that this game is coming out on PlayStation VR, which had just been announced about five minutes prior by Sony. Wow. And not only was it coming out on PS4, they were going to be giving demos of the game in the latest version of Unreal Engine, which we did not even know they were porting to because everything up to that point had been on Unity. And it was like, I I was like, oh my God, we have gotten so screwed. And what was interesting is I think they thought they were screwing a little startup and that they could kind of do whatever they wanted. They were going to get away with it. And then the next day we announced the Facebook acquisition and it was a real roller coaster dynamic where you go through this power dynamic of like, you know, Oh, like, Oh, well, there's nothing you can do. Nothing you guys can do. And then all of a sudden we get acquired by Facebook. It becomes clear that that this was not maybe the best move on their part. And then it becomes, Oh, whoa, I'm sure we'll figure something out. I, I always like that story because it shows how you can get screwed when you're a small company by bigger companies that you're working with. And you know, one of the one of the questions I always ask entrepreneurs when they're asking me about their companies is, is your company better as its own independent thing or as part of a bigger, a bigger effort? And uh, I always like to bring up that story as an example when they ask what I mean, because uh, you know, it's like, look, there, there are some, some things that if you're small, people are just going to treat you poorly if they think they can get away with it. And there is a nice thing about being big, whether you're part of someone else's big thing or being big yourself. I mean, I, I've seen this so many times. The way the things that I'm able to do when there is a bigger company behind it is a lot. There's so many things you could never do when you're small. It's you interesting though, because you, it's rather than join a big company next, you decide to start your own company. But I guess you've gotten big very quickly. I guess you might be able to say. So you still, have, you think you have those advantages again right now? Oh yeah, and, I mean, going into my going going into this as a going into this as my second company, it's very different. You know, I said before that Oculus, I started it not because I thought it'd be a successful business, but because I thought it'd be important for the long run and a lot of fun to work on. Um, I had no idea it was going to be such a case of right place, right time. With Anderol, it was very different. I said, this company, I am going to grow it to be large and influential very quickly. There's a huge market distortion that I can take advantage of. The companies that are doing defense work are totally incompetent when it comes to machine learning, AI, computer vision. And the companies that are good at those things refuse to work with DOD. And, and from the beginning, I mean, in our first pitch deck, it said, we are going to become a company that saves taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars a year and makes tens of billions of dollars a year. And I'd say like that, that was a big goal of the company from the start, because if we don't grow this to be a many billion dollar company, it means that we're just another Lark. It means we're just another supplier into the system. We didn't actually change the way. Well, you're, you're clearly talented enough to make a lot of money on this, but you, it's only worth doing if you're actually going to save save the government hundreds of billions of dollars and actually transform defense. Exactly, and and you know not even just the government. Like I look at it all the way up to the taxpayer level. Like yeah, yeah. I want I want to save the government money, but at the end of the end of the day, you know that's that's the people's money. And so if we can allow the DoD in a perfect world to spend less and do more. I think that's a really good thing, but we have to get big. And I've, I've had, I've had some people, you know, tell me like, Oh, like it's, you know, it sounds like you're really focused too much on the money. And what I have to tell them is no, no, no. I already made a buttload of money on Oculus. That's not, that's not what I'm doing this for. I'm doing this because I want to make a difference, but you can't make a difference in the defense defense space as let's say a $10 million lifestyle company. Like yep. you might build some fun gizmos and gadgets, you might get some things out there, but you're not going to be able to destroy the defense industrial complex and shift everybody from cost plus contracting models to product models where you actually are accountable for your success unless you get to a large enough scale. 
Makes sense. I, I see. I, I see it the same way. Let's talk, let's talk um, a little bit before I go really deeper. One of the really short war story on the Oculus side. Sure. Uh, less of a war story and more of a peace story. Um, you know, there, there was. I think there was a there was a time where there were a lot of companies that kind of assumed that everyone was going to be hostile towards each other and kind of doing their own thing. Very quickly, the nascent VR players, whether they were big like Sony or small like Oculus. We kind of decided it was going to be in our best interest to collaborate. And we actually did. Like we shared a ton of research. We shared our intro, our research on ergonomics. We were showing each other pre-release hardware before it came out. We were wow. telling people, hey, you know, make sure that you do this with your motion tracking system. Otherwise, you're going to make people sick. And it was one of those beautiful moments where for a short period in time, everyone knew that it would be better to help your competition because it was going to allow VR to succeed as just a general concept. Like we, we didn't all need to succeed individually. It, we needed to all succeed together. It was not a, it was not a, not a zero sum game. How did that emerge? Was that a natural thing where a few of you on each side kind of got it and decided and made that choice? It was the personalities of the people involved or was it actually the, the, the market forces? Like what actually brought that together? It was a combination. I mean, like, I think it was market driven. We weren't just doing this as like idealists who thought it was for the greater good. But like we knew that if everyone saw VR as something that made you sick or that was low quality or that was janky, that it would not be good for any of our products. And so, I mean, personality-wise, like me at Oculus, like I at Oculus was a really big, you know, if I push this really hard, that we should, you know, be kind of helping other players in the industry. At Sony, I think it was uh, Shui Yoshida-san uh, at PlayStation. And he was really big on doing the same thing. Like we would go to trade shows and we'd both have our closed doors demos running for investors and game developers and we would always make sure to bring them over and show them exactly what we're doing and explain exactly why and talk through talk through ideas where we could uh kind of share technology same thing i think with valve uh, a lot of the guys that were at valve some of who end up later coming to oculus which is its own crazy dramatic story but uh you know at, at the time it was really clear that we were all doing it for same business reasons we, we weren't yeah. we weren't communists there just like oh man no need to run a business. We all just need to share and share the love. You know, we, we, we all figured we would make. So, so even while running a business, it made sense to collaborate. That's a very positive thing to hear because you don't usually think of those people sharing notes that way. You're probably not doing that with Lockheed right now. Some people assume that we must be like these bitter competitors. And it's like, no, like we're, we're like meeting up and showing each other everything and having, having but, dinner. But, and but having- you're, you're probably not doing that much with like Lockheed and in, in, in Northrop Grumman right now, I'd imagine. And I, I think that, that dynamic in the early nascent VR days was truly unique. I had never seen anything like it in my experience before and definitely not since. And so yeah, in the defense space, unfortunately, we're not at the we're not at the point where people are wondering like, oh man, can you build a successful defense product? Like Yeah, it's not it's not like early US trying to survive or early or early Israel or something. It's kind of different. Like back then is where it would have made sense. Like if you have one company that figured out how to make repeating rifles. Probably a good idea just for the sake of the country to say, hey, we're going to license this to other companies so that they can make repeating rifles too. Because the United States needs a lot of repeating rifles in order to uh, you know, maintain our independence. And I think you did, see, you did see more things like that back then. But today, it doesn't happen. Uh, you do have probably very important new weapons right now that we need the U.S. to scale up. But it, obviously, it's just very competitive. That's how it works. That, that's interesting. Yeah, that is that, 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 that is. You know, I, I, I would love if it wasn't that way, but I understand why why it is that way. And I mean, I, I think probably it's the better dynamic. Like, sharing is good sometimes, but man, competition is the thing that really gets you to show up and work the hours and know that there's somebody who's right at your heels. Yep. 
Yep. So before we go too much deeper into Android, which you want to ask you more about, I want to talk a little bit more about the kind of science fiction stuff that's possible today. Because you obviously think about a lot of areas. You've chosen to work in specific ones. But there's a lot of these new things that are possible. Uh, like I, I guess you even just asking out broadly, what sci-fi technology is possible today that hasn't yet been built? What are the other exciting areas maybe that you even aren't doing yet right now? Oh, man. There's a lot of really interesting stuff. Uh, I think one of the big areas is around – this is kind of a broad idea. So if there, there's a lot of ways to, ways to apply it. But basically, like, taking advantage of high-skill ceiling interfaces and also taking advantage of neuroplasticity. And those are kind of two separate but linked things. Uh, we've been in this period now for about the last 20 years where everybody has been optimizing user interfaces to be easier and easier to use in the first five minutes. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's that you can pick up the iPhone and use it even if you've never used it before. You can pick up this new app and you can navigate it you know, perfectly even if you've never used it before. Uh, I don't think that that trend is actually going to continue forever. I don't think things are just going to get simpler and simpler. I think that's your excuse for when you're a grandpa that you're going to say it hasn't continued. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Because old people can't use these things. But, 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 they, but it does work for everyone else. Yeah. I, I, and I think you know, for the grandpas, there will be stuff around that is easy to use. But I think that we're actually going to see a return to what you saw more in the early days of computing, which is a philosophy that I think has been lost, which is the idea of making superhuman interfaces that do require some initial... Yeah, what's the optimal interface that you actually have to learn a little bit, but once you learn it, it's much faster and much better, basically. That's right. That makes and sense. you and I actually use this probably without thinking of it every day. Like a keyboard and a mouse, that's a superhuman interface. It takes a lot of effort to learn to type high speed, especially without looking. I mean, that's a, that's a very complex skill that you own over the course of many hours, even many years. Yep. And people were willing to learn it because it was so much better than the alternative. And I, I've seen this dumbing down of technology where everyone's going for these things where you, you use it in the first five minutes, but your, your speed and efficiency actually doesn't go up in the south thousandth hour of using the device because the device doesn't have a high this, speed. This, this is a fascinating trend with like modern dumbing down. You know, I was reading... Palmer, that up until like the 1960s at school, we used to do a lot of rote memorization. And, and it turned out for hundreds of years, our brains were trained differently by our education. If you look at how like the Lincoln-Douglas debate sounded, they were much more sophisticated. They can memorize paragraphs. They're these hard things we had to do that were harder, but then they gave you more skills to do things. And it seems like nowadays we've gotten rid of the stuff that's hard in order to get there faster, but then you kind of lose some of the depth, basically. Is that, is that, is that an analogy for this kind of interface? You're right. And I think businesses are doing what people are naturally wired to want, which is the fast reward, the thing where you don't have to put in the time, where you get that quick, you know, the quick dopamine hit, not the long-term return on productivity. And so where, where this ties into neuroplasticity, I think, is that there is enormous potential for things like brain-to-computer interfaces or peripheral nervous system interfaces that require an enormous amount of training to be able to use. I think people are thinking about these things the wrong way. They're thinking, I want to have a brain-computer interface where I, you know, I put it on my brain, and without any training, I just naturally think things. I think a word, and it does it. Or I think something out, and it types it. I think the most powerful uses of these types of uh, human-to-computer interfaces are going to be ones that do require many hours of training. You know, imagine if I could, let's say, wear a band that is detecting a lot of the a lot of the uh, electrical activity in my uh, median nerve cord in my arm. If I can learn to receive and send data along that cord in an arbitrary way after doing 100 hours of association exercises, I can potentially be hundreds of times faster than going through the traditional you know, gesture movements or yep. uh, you know, schemes that people have come up with. And I, I think that's going to be a really big part of the future of tech. And I think it is going to start with 
military and industry, not with consumers. So, so, so if you were going to build a fancy sci-fi world where there's magic spells, you'd want them to have to spend hundreds of hours to learn the magic spells. And, and that's actually more realistic. That's a great analogy. And the people who are going to learn those spells first, whether it's through a, you know, a, a nervous system interface, or maybe it's even just better interfaces for phones and haptic devices that are optimal. Actually, have you ever seen something called the Twiddler? Um, it's a, it's a one-handed corded keyboard. So you hold this device in your hand huh. and basically uh, you, you, can, you have a, a bunch of buttons for your fingers. And so you, have, uh, you, can, you can type a few letters by just pushing one at a time. But you can also do chords where you basically push multiple buttons at the same time to create other, other figures. And so you end up with like 100 different inputs you can make on this one handheld device. It takes months to learn how to use a Twiddler. I learned how to use one a while back, and it really sucks. It's much harder than even a keyboard. But then all of a sudden, you have this one-handed device where you're doing 60 to 80 words per minute, and you're not even thinking about it. That's what I think the future is going to be. Do you still use this sometimes? you bring one in the field with you or something, or no? Completely lost the skill, unfortunately. It's one of those ones where you, you, you have to – actually, that's not true. I can use one, but I'm nowhere close to the height of where I was when I was a teenager. When I was a teenager – I was able to, you know, take the time to do these types of types of weird things. I've, I've fallen out of practice because, you know, I mostly just use normal computers. It's a it's a real shame. Uh, but I think there are people who would hugely benefit from it. I think you're going to see industry and military adapting these superhuman interfaces way before the general public because they're going to be the ones that have a huge incentive. Are, to- are you building any of these right now, or if, if you are, you could tell us you're doing it secretly, or, 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 or are you designing one? Well, if I told you we were doing it secretly, it wouldn't be a secret. But That's yeah, this fair. is the type of stuff that we're working on. I mean, That's you know, fair. I mean you know, we haven't talked about it much yet, but I mean, what we build with Lattice, it's an AI sensor fusion platform that can take data from thousands of sensors and merge it into a real-time 3D model of everything and then tag everything in the model, sort it, filter it, filter it run predictive analytics on it, and then push that data out to all the people and all the robots. And so it's very, you know, at the right time. And so building interfaces that allow you to receive more information than you can through a typical augmented reality heads up display or more than you can through a typical phone are very, very interesting. And there, there's way better ways out there. So before, before I ask you about that, two more, two more other questions. What's your favorite sci-fi novel or favorite sci-fi author? Do you have one? <clears throat> oh, man. Um, one book that I really liked that I read a few years ago is The Unincorporated Man. You read this? I've, I've not read that one, The Unincorporated Man. It's it's really fascinating. I don't I don't want to spoil it too much, but the the short the short uh, you know dust cover pitch is uh, I think it's Justin Cord is the unincorporated man, an industrialist from the late uh, late nineteen nineties who after going into cryosleep wakes up hundreds of years in the future only to find that in the future everyone is has basically sold part of everyone is incorporated at birth as their own corporation. And then the government takes a slice of ownership of you for every service they provide to you growing up. So uh, whether it's food stamps, education, whatever. And so all adults inevitably, by the time they reach age of majority, are not actually owned by themselves, but are owned by the government and other people. And so there's nobody in this whole universe who actually owns the, all of themselves. And there's interesting legal implications around that. And Justin Cord is the unincorporated man. He's the only man who's unincorporated and due to a legal loophole in the way that it works, uh, they can't force him to incorporate. He just becomes the only man who can truly do whatever he wants. And there's no legal processes by which his uh, shareholders can stop him, which is something that not even the wealthiest people in this world have the luxury of doing. And I've always, 
I'm, I'm, I, just, I love that novel. It, it gets into being like a, a crazy space opera uh, further into the trilogy. But The Unincorporated Man is, is a great book. I'll check it out. I appreciate it. And, uh, and, and, and I have to ask, because we're talking about sci-fi, uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on the Fermi paradox. Do you, like, do you believe that there's going to be, be you know, multiple planets we're going to get to? And like, does it matter? And, and like, and like why? And like, what, like, like, you know, what was the hard thing to create humanity? Have we already passed the, you know, the great filter or, or was the great filter still coming? I think the great filter, if it exists, which I think is not, not necessarily a given, like there's lots of interesting theories around like, you know, if you become advanced enough to become a, a star carrying civilization, you by necessity are able to hide. And so you would only have the probability of seeing other civilizations that are advanced enough to talk to you, but not advanced enough to hide. And that act the numbers actually start to work out for that. Uh, but if there is a great filter, I think we are, I think we are yet. If, if, if there is a great filter, you think we are not, not, I think we've got so much more to do that it's hard yep. to believe that where we are. So we probably haven't passed it yet. Yeah. yeah you know, I, it's interesting. I, have you seen those star charts? There's like these, there's like these parts of the of when you look up into outer space, there's like one percent of all known universes like just black randomly in one area. It kinda looks like someone blocked it off. And we have no good explanation other than that maybe an alien species blocked it off, at least as far as I understand. Have you studied any of this? It it seems like the evidence is pretty good. There are people hiding out there. I haven't studied that particular side of it. Uh I've I've I I've actually I've not heard of that particular side of it. I will admit, uh, you know, I, I was on my Fermi Paradox jam probably like in my in my early 20s and I haven't got dove back in too much in the last few years not too worried about aliens right now you're focused on earthly issues let's go back to earthly issues so so you decided but aliens are so fun I will say this I want to believe and I really I think I am a believer like there there, there, there is something out there uh but you know that's that, that is, that's probably a whole conversation a lot of for, all, for all we know Palmer you are an alien though so we we, we have to you know there's no we have to figure I, it out to throw it there which is I mean, the, the side of the side of the alien equation I've been looking at has been less the academic Fermi paradox thing and like the, the latest advances. And like, I, I had not heard that there were black areas out there that maybe it's called the great nothing. You could look it up and there's, there's two of them. There's one that's even bigger, but there's, there's the great nothing. Yeah. And the, and the, and the, and the, I think in the Erdonis uh, constellation, there's another big black area. Anyway, yeah, I'm fascinated by these things, but, but like you, let's, let's focus, let's focus back on earth. So, so you you have all these abilities to know what's going on in the future. You built some of the you have all the money you ever can need. You built some amazing hardware and software, and you you know how to innovate. You decide to focus on defense, and you said you want to save the government and the taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, like wh- why else is the underall important? Like what is what is it what does it mean to you? Because for the first time in history, most innovative technology companies in America are largely not working with the United States military. That's truly unprecedented. There's never been a point in U.S. history where that was the case. The most innovative technology has always been accessible to our military. And the most valuable companies have always worked with our military. And I think that really gets to the core of why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, Russia and China don't have these issues. Their best technology companies are working on defense challenges. Their best people are working on defense challenges. And so if we end up crippling ourselves by putting our best people to work on search engine optimization and ad delivery, how can we possibly expect to compete? And that, that's what we're trying to build here is a defense products company, not a defense contractor, but a defense products company. Is that a sign of a decaying society that the best people won't even defend their own society? Or like, what is it a sign of? Oh, man. I, I, I like to think that it's actually just a, 
it, it's like a, a specific trend of the of the modern time and strategic foes that are going after. Like this didn't happen by accident. I think China's done a very good job of making China does a great job of keeping the entire world, corporate world, on a hair trigger where they know that if they do anything that is going to upset China, they won't get access to Chinese markets and they won't get access to Chinese capital. And we see this especially in the media with the film studios. You know, the, the, the idea of making an anti-China film in the modern day is unthinkable to most of these studios. And so uh, I, I think that it's not like a, it's not just a sign of moral decay. In fact, I'd say probably eight out of 10 people working in the tech industry if you ask them, do you want the United States to have the strongest military in the world? Eight out of 10 would give you a strong yes. The last, you know, you have one of them that says they're not sure and one of them that would be against it. So most people in the tech industry, I think, do agree. The problem is the corporate dynamics make it more profitable to keep China happy and to not piss off the media, which is uh, kind of disproportionately anti-defense. Fascinating. So in a sense, you're a 2020s version of a hippie who's overcoming the corporate interest to push what what the common people want. (laughs) I like it. I hadn't thought about it that way, but it is is actually really, really similar. And like in the same way that I think you had uh, like people, people complained that we had a disproportionately, uh, you know, pro, pro uh, corporate and pro military media. And I think that really has flipped. I don't think anyone would argue that let's say the American tech press uh, or even just the, the press in general is too pro military. I, I think that idea, you know, went, went away long, long hundred percent. So let's. I want to learn more about Andrew. So Andrew Palmer, like to me, you've hired like all this amazing talent. You have all these amazing projects you're doing. You're growing revenue faster than any defense company has in history, as far as I know. A lot of people don't have this perspective. A lot of people they hear these big defense companies who are very threatened by you downplaying you talking about how oh, there's one or two products. It's not a real defense company. So there's a lot of people who are kind of, who, who want to tell a more negative story. I, I think it's because they're jealous and threatened, but give, give us a sense of your success so far. Give us a sense of what you're doing. So people can hear it directly from you. Well, yeah, I think there are people who downplay us and then they also overplay their competition. You know, they say, Oh, Andrew's doing great AI stuff, but we have great AI too. It's really, really good. And it's not, uh, you know, the, 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 it's really cheap to say word. You can just say we're as good as Andrew. And until you actually get to a real field trial, the words are as good as the actual. That, that was the same experience with Palantir with me is that we are competing against a lot of innovation theater where they couldn't actually do it when they actually had to deploy it. It took years to deploy. It took billions of dollars and didn't actually work. Oh, I mean, I mean you know, for, for people who don't know what innovation theater is, you know, there's, there's all these people at DOD who have this job. Basically, their job is to generate things that look real enough to make a press release or to do a panel or to release a video or to talk to Congress. And none of it is actually real or useful or deployable. It's, it's pretty wild. And so, so, so tell us about a few of your products. What are you guys actually doing? What that you could tell me about? Sure. So we're doing a few things. I mean, the first product that we worked on is called the Sentry Tower. It is a solar-powered, infrastructure-independent AI surveillance tower uh, that you can put basically anywhere, put it around a military base, a border, critical infrastructure like power plants, uh, desalination sites. And it uses radar, thermal vision, visible spectrum imaging, and a few other sensors fed into a probability model running on a computer that allows you to detect all the people, all the vehicles, all the animals, all the drones that are a couple miles around it. And these things also mesh together. They talk to each other. So you can deploy you know, strings of these things a couple miles apart and get really good awareness of everything that's going on 
around your base or around your airport or around your border, whatever it is you're trying to understand. I remember when you were first building this and you had the thing that said like 97% horse because I don't think you entered a cow model yet. But uh, that, that was, that was yeah, the system, had, right? Yeah, we had some problems early on where, yeah, yeah you're totally right. We had we, we only had one classifier for that type of animal. And so uh, you know, we, were, we were always getting the animals wrong. We're actually a lot better now, but usually we just report it as an animal. Um, it's you, one don't, of the, you don't bother telling them that's a, that what type of horse or donkey it is. You just say animal. Yeah. Yeah, most of the time. Like it is, the customers can set it up to be more specific than that, but generally they want fewer variables to sort. They don't want to have in their list of variables like, uh, you know, all the types of horses and cows and donkeys and goats and then people. They just want to have animal, like ignore animals. And yep. you know, that's, that's generally the, the right thing. It still keeps track of what went through, but they don't want to pay too attention to it in the moment. Um, and, and, so, and this is being used on a lot of the border. How much of the border is using this right now? And how, how are they using it? I can't tell you, but I can tell you that there's hundreds of powers out there. Um, awesome. So, it's, you know, just spread across a lot of different places. So we've got a lot of these things out there. And one of the things we're really proud of is that we have over 97% uptime on these towers, uh, which I think we can get better, but most of that is down for like maintenance and upgrades. Compare that with our competition, which is not AI powered, requires people to be watching all the sensors. Like that's our cool thing. We can cover. I heard that people were driving these pickup trucks where they would have a metal grate and then they'd look for footprints uh, the, the metal in the, in the smoothed out dirt. I mean, it was that bad, right? Yep, it's called cutting sign. So they just drag stuff on the dirt to smooth it out, and then they go back later, look for footprints, look at the direction, and then they go and try to find them. I mean, the, the problem is that that's very labor-intensive. You spend all of your time trying to understand what happened a while ago. And with our system, one person can understand everything that's happening across hundreds of square miles. That, that's, that's a total game-changer when you're talking, especially about military applications, where people imagine you can just have an unlimited number of people, but it's not true. You can only have such... A large footprint. You know, there's only so many people you can support at one of these forward operating bases. And so if you can take people off of useless tasks and put them to use on useful tasks, that's a that's a really big deal. Um, and then as far as other products, I think we've, we've built a few things that kind of enhance the capabilities of our sentry towers. Uh, well, one of them is Anvil, which is a counter drone interceptor that can knock other drones out of the sky. We built a lot of jamming technology and electronic warfare technology that can, uh, that can detect and destroy and jam a lot of different electronic systems, including drones. Uh, we've built a small sensor. We can call it dust. It's basically a very small disposable sensor that you can carry a bunch of in a backpack. And it has a much shorter range than a tower, but it has a radar. It has a camera. It has a processor. It has a radio. And so you can basically just toss one of these things on the side of a tree, on the side of a hill. They, you, we, we have versions of them that look like, like uh, little rocks. And uh, they're able to detect when people or vehicles are going by and immediately classify that and feed it. How, how, do, how does the little rock work? Is it listening or is it watching or, or what is it doing? So, so it has a, it has an onboard radar on it. It is putting out, it's, it's very low resolution radar. Basically think of it as like a motion detection radar. It just detects when there are things are moving. When things are moving, it powers up the rest of the system and then takes pictures of it with thermal imagery and EO imagery. Oh, got it. So if a horse goes by, you'll get the picture of a horse. But if a cat, if a car goes by, you'll get the picture of the car as well. Yeah, and if it's a picture of a horse, it will usually ignore it. it. Says, "Oh, that's fine. Turn back off." If it's a car, it remains on, continues watching it, and then starts a radio link back home. And uh, it, it, that, that's a really useful tool. Where I don't think we'd be able to make money off of them if we were selling them on their own. But they make the rest of our products so much more valuable because, like, with Sentry Towers. You're, you have geometry problems. Like I can't see behind a hill. I can't see behind a building. But if you use dust 
plus Sentry towers, you can take that install that was 95% coverage and turn it into 100% coverage. Which is so, you might, so you might have towers, and then you add some dust in different areas around, and then you have all of a sudden you have everything going on. And then I think on the on the on the kind of airframe side, we've been doing a lot more aerial vehicles. Uh, our, our our main one that people know about is called Ghost. It is a man portable electric helicopter drone. You carry it in a backpack, pulls up into a carry case that's smaller than a uh, than a uh, than a typical DJI. Give, drone. Give, give me some. Give us some stats on Ghost. Like what, how fast does this thing go? How long does it go for? Uh, so it'll cruise at about 85 miles an hour. It can fly for up to two hours on a battery and up to six and a half hours on a hydrogen fuel cell, uh, which clips on and places the battery. Uh, the really cool thing about it is like the airframe is incredible. It can carry a ton of payload. It can fly for a very long time. It's also, uh, we call it ghost because it's basically inaudible and almost invisible. Uh, at a hundred meters, it is inaudible to the human ear. Wow. And at, it, because, because it's a helicopter, it's very, very skinny and very, very short. And we stack everything all in a line. When you look at it dead on, it's like a, it's like this big. Like this wow. is the front of the thing. So try looking at a square that's like you know three inches tall, three inches wide, a hundred meters away. It's basically invisible. And if you get a few hundred meters, like let's say three hundred meters, you you are invisible. Dude, does it fly? If it, if it wants to be stealth, it flies three hundred meters high then, and just like goes over, and people don't see it. Exactly. Well, yeah, not even three hundred meters. We can actually we can track people at about a kilometer. So, you know, a thousand, a thousand meters, we can be out and we're following people, classifying people, and we don't have to, and they, they just never hear the thing. They have no, no idea it's even watching them. Could you put weapons on this thing or it's, that's not a thing you put weapons on? So we do not put weapons on it yet. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that, I, I, I mean, this, this is another whole discussion, but I don't think there's a moral high ground in saying you refuse to put weapons on things. I've seen a few other drone companies doing this, like, oh, we would help with this, but we would never, we would never help deploy a weapon system. It's like, look, the, 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 like the U.S. Army is a weapon. Uh, yes. The U.S. Marine Corps is a weapon. There's no high ground in, in saying, oh, I'm just the guy that found the target, pointed a laser at the head, and then let something else go after the guy. Like if, if, if you can make something that allows for more precision strike with less collateral damage, I think it'd be morally reprehensible to refuse to do it to try and keep your own hands clean. What's so, an example of something that would be a higher precision strike? What's an example of, of, a, of, of a new technology for higher precision strike? You can you give us an exa- something you think about? I, like the, the easiest example is just things with smaller booms. I mean, like uh, you know, a, a predator carrying a hellfire, that's a, that's a pretty pretty big piece of ordinance. And you know, we, we've seen a lot of unfortunate situations where a strike has caused collateral damage uh, because it was too close and you couldn't make something that just takes out one person. They've, they've actually been do, actually one of the interesting things on the Hellfire. There's a new version of the Hellfire that uh, basically just runs into people. It doesn't even have explosives. It just runs into targets and is has very little collateral damage. Um, I think an example in the future would be like, what if you could make that into the, what? What if you could say, I'm going to have uh, like right now a very low collateral damage strike would be like, uh, let's say a U.S. Marine uh, uh, you know, sniper pair, and that guy can take out an individual person without anyone around them getting hurt. If you could take that capability and push that forward so that it could be done from a remotely operated platform that doesn't require putting a sniper team up on a hill where... The, the obvious thing would be is if you had something very high above that could drop something or something like that. Exactly. I mean, there's a, there's a million ways to, to imagine approaching the problem. But I think that that's what the future of warfare is going to look like. I think it's does, it, does, it, does it scare you to imagine the bad guys we're competing against getting tools like these and being able to drop things very precisely on us. Let's just say, let's just say they had this and it was hard to trace and they cited the Palmer that you were a high value target and they want to take you out. It seems pretty scary to me. How do we like, how do we prevent that from happening? 
I, I, the thing is, they're already doing this. So, but they haven't. Ta- they're not taking anyone, any of us out yet so far. Like they're not taking high value targets out in the U.S. Hopefully. Well, I mean, like there are armed drones attack, armed drone attacks that are going on. They're they're doing real damage. Um, I think that, that not all of this is necessarily broadcast to the public in a really big way. Like if you get attacked by drones and it's successful, you don't even want the guy who launched the drone to know that it was successful. You don't want to basically announce. Hey, this is the tactic that works. They got us. We had no way to stop. Well, them. you want to make it look like a heart attack, but that's hard to do from a drone. I mean, unless you I guess you shoot through, shoot a tiny thing, and it gives them a heart attack, huh? I don't know. You, you know, who, who knows? I mean, that that type of stuff is going to happen. But even if you can't give someone a heart attack with a little pin, you can definitely shoot them or you know blow up a little tiny high explosive charge. And yeah. we do have adversaries that are doing that right now. I think they're going to do it more and more. And the key is you have to build the defensive system. Like that's why we're building Anvil. That's why we're building our counter UAS systems in general. Um, but but, but they're, they're doing that right now in theaters of war like Syria and Iraq, or are they doing it other places too? Or you can't say? So I can't say any specifics, but we have done combat validation where we've set these things downrange. Yep. Uh, and I mean, that's, that's one of the biggest threats that our troops are facing right now. Like, it, it is unmanned systems that are being weaponized, and some of them are being done in a kind of haphazard way, like IEDs were, uh, you know, during during the, the war on terror. Uh, but you are also having very sophisticated state actors. The Chinese, in particular, have a variety of companies that are building weaponized drones with you know really lethal systems on them, and those are being sold to other countries right now. So, so, so fast forward. This show is called the American Optimist. Fast forward thirty years, we have a lot of more advanced. You know, unmanned weapon systems being created. We have AI getting a lot better. Um, what's optimistic about this? My optimism is like people focus on the weapon side. They don't focus enough on the information side. Like, yeah, information allows you to conduct these strikes. But right now, there are so many unknowns in any military operation. You don't really know what the enemy is doing. You often don't even really know what all of your assets are doing. Imagine a world where every military engagement, or at least the vast majority of them, where you know exactly what is going on, you know exactly what's going to happen, and you know exactly what capabilities you have and what capabilities the enemy has. I think in a world where both sides have similar capabilities, you're actually going to see a lot less war because you can actually figure out what the outcome of many conflicts will be long before it happens. It's kind of like two really good Go players look at a position and they both realize who's going to win and they could just they could just be done. They don't, they don't have to go through the whole battle. Exactly. And, and it's, that's especially true, I think, when one side is very clearly going to win. Like, Right now, a lot of our adversaries we go up against, I don't think they go into battle believing in their hearts that they are about to lose. I think they get misled by their own politicians and by their own... That, that was that was a story for Japan from World War II, right? They were completely misled by the senior, by the senior exactly. people there. They said, we're going to win. The Americans, we're going to have them on the run. They're, they're barely hanging on. And they're able to convince these people into doing things that obviously don't make any sense. But if you know you're going to lose, I think that all of a sudden that changes the dynamic. So if we, so we can keep America as dominant as it was, we have a sort of Pax Americana, and, and we have a much more optimistic, much more peaceful 30 years. Whereas if America does not innovate and Andrew doesn't exist, then you're going to have people challenging us because they believe they can challenge us. That, that, that's the idea? Yeah, I, and I think, I think that's, that's basically the idea. And we benefit from the status quo Quite a bit. I mean, that's what U.S. military force is largely used to do. Like, people make jokes about it, about the U.S. being the world police. But, like, what is our Navy out there doing? They're ensuring that there's free trade and open shipping lanes and that boats aren't getting, uh, you know, robbed and, and sunk and, and destroyed. So, po- positive things. Well, I guess along those lines, Paul, I want to ask you before we end, like, what, why is America worth defending? Why is this country 
you know, wor- worthy. There's obviously there's some mistakes it's made. There's a lot of people who believe that America was founded in sin and, is, and it has all sorts of mistakes and is not a good place. You obviously believe America is worth defending. What, why is that? I think that America as a whole has made a lot of mistakes. But if you look around the world and you look at what the other options are, we are far and away the best choice. I think that there's a reason that even if you go to Europe and even if you go to much of Asia and you say, do you want the United States to continue to be the strongest military power? So many people say yes. It's because despite our mistakes, we have a pretty good record of at least trying to respect human rights. We have a lot of, we want democracy for more of the world. We want free speech for more of the world. We want more human rights for more of the world. And that the same cannot be said of the other potential, you know, hyperpowers that would want to step into the United States' shoes. And so really, it makes it a really easy equation. Like, it's, it's, not a, it's not a matter of can the U.S. be better or not. Of course, the United States can be better. But when you look at the choices, we're so far and away the best uh, in terms of our track record and especially in terms of our stated goals. Like, China is not out there saying our stated goal is to try to allow democracy to flourish and to make sure that everyone has the same, you know, has the same rights. Uh, Russia is not doing the same thing either. And so I, I think the United States is something special. It's, what's really special about the United States is that we have these ideals and we are the most powerful nation in the world. What a lucky stroke of coincidence that is. It's not been many times in the history of the world where the biggest player also happens to be pretty benevolent and not on a you – know, we're not out there trying to take over countries and bring them into our empire. That is incredibly strange from a world history perspective. I mean, can you, like, there's just not many yeah. examples where that's been the case. And so I, I hope we can keep that running. And, and you, you think, you think most of your team agrees with you at Andrew, you're, the people you've hired, this is the, this is the mission in the company that they really believe this country is worth defending too. Oh yeah. And like part of our mission is like, it's to protect, it's to protect uh, America and America's allies and Western values writ large. I mean, everyone here believes in democracy. We believe in free speech. We don't just sell to the United States, worth noting. Like, one of our best customers is the UK Ministry of Defense, particularly the UK Royal Marines and their future commando force. Um, those are the types of countries that I think we want to be in the driver's seat going forward. And I, I think I think we're on a good path to that. No, it's amazing. Well, and- Andrew means obviously the sword that defends the West. Palmer, you're sort of America's Iron Man right now. So I wish you the best of luck in, in protecting us and keeping us strong. Thanks so much for joining. Stay optimistic, man. Thank, thank you.